There's a letter to the editor in The Lancet of April 1956 that starts like this. Sir, scant attention seems to be paid by the medical profession and by food administrators to a very important change in the dietaries of the more civilised countries that has been occurring over recent decades with increasing intensity. I refer to a chronic relative deficiency of the polyethanoid essential fatty acids, EFA. These days we'd call them polyunsaturated. The letter continues. It is true that the matter was raised in your columns a year ago, but then no less a person than a professor of nutrition stated that such deficiency rarely, if ever, occurs in man. Professor Yudkin, however, has the disadvantage of not having worked upon EFA. Our own experimental work, humble in scope, combined with a careful assessment of the literature, has led us to exactly the opposite conclusion. The causes of death that have increased most in recent years are lung cancer, coronary thrombosis and leukaemia. I believe that in all three groups, deficiency of EFA may be important. Your readers with stereotyped minds should stop reading at this point. The author of this letter was Oxford physician Hugh MacDonald Sinclair who was the first to put forward a comprehensive theory as to how a nutritional imbalance of bad fats and good fats contributed to what he called diseases of civilization. The controversy that he described has, in a way, continued to this day, as outlined in a viewpoint piece in December's Internal Medicine Journal titled Omega-3 Fatty Acids and Cardiovascular Prevention. Is the jury still out? In today's episode of IMJ On Air, we'll hear from lead author Professor Christian Hamilton Craig. The journal and this podcast are both produced for the Royal Australian College of Physicians, to which I am but humble servant, Mick Cavazzini. Now, Hugh Sinclair's hypothesis was largely ignored for 15 years, but in 1971, Danish researchers published the results from a cross-sectional study of Inuit people living on the west coast of Greenland, who, as you can imagine, ate a fish-based diet rich in polyunsaturated fatty acids. To quote from the abstract, the most remarkable finding was a much lower level of pre-beta lipoprotein, and consequently of plasma triglycerides, in Greenlandic Eskimos than in Danish controls. These findings may explain the very low incidence of ischemic heart disease and the complete absence of diabetes mellitus in Greenlandic Eskimos. End quote. Basically, the polyunsaturated fatty acids known as omega-3s were turning up in tissue after being consumed in fish and that association between a fishy diet and lowered cardiovascular risk has been replicated in other population studies over the years. So much so that since 2002, the American Heart Association has recommended that all patients with documented coronary heart disease consume 1,000 milligrams of omega-3 fatty acids per day, preferably coming from oily fish, of which a serving size of 100 grams should do the trick. For patients without documented CHD, a serving of fish at least twice a week is recommended, or also other foods rich in linolenic acid, such as flaxseed, canola, soybean and walnuts. The 2008 guidelines from the National Heart Foundation of Australia are pretty much identical. But here's the rub. Despite the compelling epidemiological evidence and preclinical evidence, the findings from intervention trials have not always been consistent. From several large RCTs over the past 25 years, there have been just as many negative or neutral associations as there have been positive ones. Today's guest has tried to make sense of this in his recent IMJ review. But before we hear from him, let me hand you over to the journal's sub-editor for general cardiology and deputy editor-in-chief, Dr. Paul Bridgman. He practices at Christchurch Hospital in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and teaches at the University of Otago. 
Kia ora katara, everyone. Um, I'm Paul Bridgman. I'm here as an editor for the Internal Medicine Journal and also as someone who feels he should eat more fish and is trying to eat more fish and is doing that on the basis not of a deep understanding of the academic literature, but because the popular press makes me think it might be a good idea. I'm delighted today to have Christian Hamilton Craig with us. Um, Christian knows more about this than I do. He's recently published in the Internal Medicine Journal, um, the Journal of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. Um, Christian, you're with us from Noosa, I gather. Welcome. Thank you, Paul. I'm Christian Hamilton Craig. I'm a cardiologist at the University of Queensland. I'm speaking to you from Cubby Gubby country on the Sunshine Coast, where I work as a clinical cardiologist in uh, Noosa. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak, and particularly to my co-authors, Karam, David, and Steve Nichols, who I know a lot more about this topic even than I do, uh, and uh, we enjoyed writing this article, which came together out of, out of actually a lipid meeting where we were sitting around and musing about uh, the controversies around omega-3 uh, fish oils, and we thought, well, why don't we write a proper review article to inform both ourselves and others? Oh, th thank you very much to you and the team, Christian. So I guess fresh fish and omega-3 are slightly different things. Um, can you start by telling us what is omega-3? Yes, so uh, omega-3 oils are a, a group of, of fatty acids um, which predominantly comprise the, the plant-derived ALA, which is alpha-linoleic acid from plants, and then the two other important ones, which are EPA and DHA, predominantly derived from seafood, and the important point being that they are called so-called essential in that they, they rely on intake with very little production within your body. And the, these two uh, omega-3 fatty acids, EPA, which has 20 carbons, or DHA, which has 22 carbons, are very closely related and are predominantly found in, in fish and seafoods and in some smaller amounts in some uh, legumes and nuts, but not a lot. And there's a wide range of punitive biological effects. Do you have a feeling for what you think might be the most important? Yeah, I think um, in high doses, triglyceride lowering is, is important. And so our patients that have significant hypertriglyceridemia should be treated with high-dose fish oils. But that's slightly different group from what we concentrate on in this paper, which is use of fish oils or omega-3 oils for prevention of cardiovascular disease, both primary and secondary prevention. And that's a tricky group because there's been controversial or discordant findings in the literature. Um, but we think that, or the literature proposes that high-dose fish oils lower triglycerides, well, they do, but they're also antithrombotic, somewhat anti-inflammatory. They do appear to have some membrane stabilization properties which reduce arrhythmias in the post-infarct patients. Uh, and therefore is thought to improve cardiovascular outcomes, we think. But the jury is still out. So that is, I think you're correct, that it's, it's in the primary and secondary prevention of coronary events that is probably the area of widest interest here. Um, unlike dietary modification, we do have randomised controlled data with the um, omega-3s. Um, do you want to talk us through, first of all, the, uh, the pros or the positive studies? Yeah, being brief, I mean, this area first came about um, with some early research on observing Greenland Inuit who had a very high marine intake of EPA DHA, which was then uh, trialled in the Italian trial, the GCP trial in post-infarct patients, published in 1999, about 11,000 patients 
using a moderate dose of EPA DHA, so about 800 milligrams a day. In that particular trial, they showed a decrease in cardiovascular events, particularly in arrhythmic sudden cardiac death post-infarct. So we still think that's probably a, a useful group. And that's um, there was a quasi-randomized post-coronary bypass study that also had reduced outcomes. So that's a positive trial. This was followed by two other positive trials, which are different. There's a Japanese uh, intervention trial, which used EPA alone. And I think later we'll discuss EPA versus combined EPA DHA. But the Japanese trial didn't have a, a, a placebo group. So there was a reduction in events, but it's not a placebo-controlled trial. More recently, and I think more famously, there's the REDUCE-IT trial, which is a big trial published by um, a, a large uh, trialists group in America. And, and this used a, a so-called purified icosapentyl ether EPA, which has just been approved by the TGA in Australia for clinical use. And it was high-risk patients with either coronary heart disease or at high risk, and they were given a big dose, 4,000 milligrams a day. And dosing is probably an important part of this story. So in that trial, there was a significant uh, difference in the two groups, but we might come to why that is later, uh, because there may be issues with the, uh, the comparator placebo in that trial, which may have changed outcomes. So those three, the, the GCP, the Japanese trial, and the REDUCE, it showed reductions in events, whereas uh, Steve Nichols, co-author, uh, and just recent past president of the Cardiac Society was the lead author of the STRENGTH trial, which is a, a large trial using a similar dose, about four grams, but they had used a combined EPA DHA, so uh, both types of oils. And in that trial, there was no difference. It was a, So it wasn't a, a, a negative trial, it was a neutral trial. And the combination of these uh, evidence has left us scratching our heads a bit as to what the truth might be. Yes, Steve's group certainly went for a, a good dose um, in strength. Uh, what do you think the significance is that they included DHA as well as EPA in that in their active arm there? I this is a personal understanding, and forgive me if I uh, the, the biochemistry is complex, but my understanding is that the EPA is also metabolized into DHA when after ingested when it's actually um, metabolized by the body uh, and ma the majority of, of action of fish oils at the membrane level is probably dha mediated so i'm not convinced that epa alone is the answer but i just don't think we have enough data to separate the two so my personal practice is i, I use epa dha combined because it's that's what you get in your average fish oil capsule is a combination of the two oils uh, I'm not clear that the so-called purified EPA alone makes a huge difference for the cost, and the cost is not clear. They've just entered the market in Australia, and we don't have a clear price point. So I'm not, I don't know. So I guess uh, strength was a neutral trial. Yep. I gather the confidence and intervals may overlap with the reduce it. Um, how, how do you put the two of them t together? Yeah, I think that's true. So there is a, a quite a nice meta-analysis looking at both strength and reduce it combined. And they do a forest plot, which is one of those sort of um, plots which have the, the confidence intervals, and they do indeed overlap. And if you look at the totality of evidence in a meta-analysis group of about 135,000 patients recently published, it suggests, but I guess not confirms, 
that supplementation with omega-3s does reduce the risk of major cardiovascular events by about 5% and the risk of cardiovascular death by 6%. So reasonable um, uh, improvements, that's relative uh, reduction. So I guess the absolute risk reduction is is modest. Um, So there's some controversy around which fish oils to use in which groups, but I think there's little controversy about dietary fish. And just to explain to the audience, about 100 grams of salmon, so a pink salmon, Atlantic or Pacific salmon, will give you about 1,000 milligrams of EPA, DHA combined. And most pieces of salmon, if you go to a fish shop, is probably around the 200-gram mark, roughly. So it's a reasonable dose in fish, but not in white fish. So the type of fish you eat does matter. Perhaps we'd just come back to the placebo comparator and reduce it. I think many of the audience will know there's concerns that that was a mineral oil placebo rather than corn oil. Um, do you know, Christian, if anyone's tried to unpick that and um, map through what the uh, adverse effects on the, the surrogate endpoints might be and if looked at if, if it had been a corn oil comparator? Yeah, it's, it's an unusual uh, scientific situation where for some reason the trialists shows a, a mineral oil rather than a more neutral uh, corn oil that was used in the other trials. And in this trial, there's a very elegant um, sub-study published fairly recently by Paul Ridke showing that in the placebo group of Reduce It, um, LDL cholesterol went up, lipoprotein A went up, CRP went up by a large amount, 38%, interleukins, uh, et cetera, went up. Uh, And so the so-called placebo group actually had a worse biochemical profile, possibly due to the uh, placebo itself, than the treated group. And the problem that creates is that the difference between the two groups may be attributable in part to a so-called toxic effect of the placebo. No one's actually unpicked how much uh, of an effect that had. In the response by the authors, they said it had a so-called small or difficult to measure effect but it really casts doubt on the reliability of that trial in terms of the efficacy of the fish oil as opposed to the toxicity of the comparator. And all of the other placebo-controlled arms, such as Jupiter, Cantos, and Strength, used a corn oil, which is neutral. So I think that leaves the science of it in uh, equipoise. Um, So is it fair, Kristen, to ask you, how often do you eat fish currently? Yeah, it is fair. Um, I live in Queensland, and in fact, the access to good quality oily fish isn't as good in Queensland as other states. I think most of it gets exported. Uh, So I try and get to eat fish twice a week if I can, Um, and I do take some omega-3 supplement. I take one capsule of triple-strength fish oil, and a triple-strength oil has about 1,500 milligrams of EPA DHA. But in a primary prevention patient such as myself, without... Uh, having had a previous event, the um, the benefit of EPA DHA supplementation may be very small. So one of the things uh, you know we can do is actually measure the EPA DHA effect in the body. And maybe just just to clarify before you do, sorry, when when you're talking about your uh, supplementation, Christian, or, or or even these trials, we're talking daily capsules of a thousand milligrams. Yeah, if, if, it's a, if it's a patient who is in the high-risk groups, and that is established coronary artery disease, secondary prevention, 
left ventricular dysfunction or prior bypass surgery, uh, then I use about two capsules a day. So a reasonable dose of a triple strength fish oil. A triple strength fish oil is a slightly larger capsules, but obviously um, much more potent than the single strength. And the single strength capsules that you get cheap from the pharmacy, you probably have to have five or six a day, which people don't do. So I, I just recommend ordering a, a triple strength online or from your local pharmacy and having two a day. It's, as you say, it's hard to imagine anyone having five capsules a day, and it's hard to imagine anyone but the Inuit eating that much oily fish per day. Yeah, that's right. So so it can't be the only source, or, or as you say, in primary prevention, maybe it's not that essential, inverted commas. Yeah, I, I think the evidence doesn't really support prevention with primary prevention using fish oils. Uh, I think... In our paper, we sort of try and distill down what are the three groups that have the greatest benefit from fish oil supplementation, and they are patients at secondary prevention, patients who with ejection fraction below 50%, particularly after a myocardial infarction, and interestingly, those patients that have low omega-3 levels. And so you can measure the omega-3 index in the red cells. It's like an HbA1c. It measures the amount of um, uh, EPA DHA in the red cell membrane and that costs about a hundred dollars uh, by the major pathology providers there's no Medicare rebate for that and in selected patients I will do that in, in those who are either at high risk and I want to know that the therapy is effective or those who are not taking fish oil supplements and who I think have an inadequate intake in which case measuring their level will confirm whether they will likely benefit from supplementation or not. And for the clinician, Christian, what's your uh, cut point there for thinking that you, uh, supplementation may be of benefit? If, if they're below 4%, then they definitely are at high risk, and your target is to supplement to a dose above 8%. Uh, my personal index was 7.9%, which I think is sufficient, and that's with intermittent fish and a little bit of fish oil capsules, so just to give you a rough idea. So I just have to ask a bit more about fish intake. Say you're a Queenslander, you can't afford salmon twice a week or you don't eat salmon more than once a week. What other fish should our Queenslanders be looking at, Christian? Um, look, oily fish uh, are defined as it's predominantly salmon and, and pink fish such as trout. Um, the Australian Heart Foundation document from 2008 actually goes into the different types of fish that you can have. Uh, but... You know, a fish oil capsule is probably cheaper than fish. Fish is pretty expensive up here. Um, and just to remind the audience, fish oils are actually not derived from fish. They're derived from the algae that the fish ingest, and then the algae is metabolized into the omega-3 oil. So it really is a plant product if you look at the very beginnings of it. And you can get pure plant-based omega-3 oils that don't have um, fish in the production. And then, and then drive from algae for those vegan patients or patients with dietaries. Christian, we've talked about fish oil. How about krill oil? Well, um, David Calhoun uh, has lectured us on this in the past and says that he calls krill oil con oil um, somewhat facetiously, but it's a very expensive way of getting the same uh, product. So um, there's really no difference in the type of fish oil that you have. What the, the person needs to look at is the back of the bottle. How much EPA, DHA are you getting in a dose? And you need at least 1,000 or maybe 2,000 milligrams of the active ingredient. Uh, and so I, I don't think that krill oil is necessarily 
the way to go. It's just a more expensive way of taking the same uh, product. Okay. Um, what else should we be asking you, Christian? I'd, Mick, do you have a feeling where we should go? Um, I had a question. I only skimmed over the article. I didn't. I, I didn't have a lot of time to pick through it. But the line in the intro that there there is a um, rationale: the anti-inflammatory or reported anti-inflammatory or anti-thrombotic properties, um, lower circulating triglycerides, and and something about how omega threes keep vessels impermeable to plaque forming lipoproteins. Is all of that evidence? Hard, hard and fast. It's been observed, you know, in clinical studies and then dug into in preclinical work. Yeah, I, I think, I think, no, I think the preclinical work and the biochemical background is sound. The difference between EPA and EPA DHA is slightly unclear. I think it's an area which does attract interest from both public health providers and the general public themselves. So they're interested. People want to know, should they be eating fish or fish oils? Uh, and therefore, there is a, an imperative to uh, improve the evidence base and tighten up the science. And really what we would need to do is have an appropriately powered large-scale trial in patients with an adequate dose of fish oil in whom the effect is accurately measured so that we're measuring their omega-3 index and then with a comparator that's genuinely neutral placebo. So that would be the next step, and that would probably have to be a fairly large-scale uh, funded trial. And currently I'm not aware of any plans to do such a trial. And, and where are the, the guidelines at the moment typically just point to secondary prevention, pe people with a documented history of coronary heart disease? Predominantly, yes, because that, they're the groups in which uh, omega-3 supplementation has been shown to have benefit in multiple uh, trials and meta-analyses. So you wouldn't change anything about what's been said in those? I don't think so. Um, I, I think the only the only change I really learned out of this is that a bit like anywhere else in medicine, if you can measure something and measure its effect, you probably should. Uh, and so I offer that to patients. I don't push for it, but I think if you really want to know if you're giving someone a treatment and that treatment is effective and it's a measurable effect, then you should probably measure it in that individual because just to deepen that, fish oil consumption, fish oil absorption, and fish oil dosing are all factors. Uh, and so people can be consuming a reasonable amount of fish but not absorbing it, for example. And hence their omega-3 levels really are the key to unlocking this whole uh, area, I think. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of work to be done there. There is. Um, thank you, Christian. I think... Um very helpful to unpack the science for us there. I'll continue to eat fish because I enjoy it and I'm now much more informed of the uh, the scientific evidence uh, and the uncertainties really that we all face we all, we all have about this. Excellent. Thank you very much for the opportunity and I hope people do continue to eat fish. I think the, the other closing comment I would say is that there's certainly no harm and definitely some benefit. So the benefit outweighs the risk. Many thanks to Christian Hamilton Craig for joining this episode of IMJ On Air, and to Paul Bridgman for volunteering yet more of his time on top of his editorial work for the Internal Medicine Journal. Neither guest has any conflicts of interest to declare. 
At our webpage, recp.edu.au slash podcast, you'll find a transcript of this episode, complete with links to all the academic references, including, of course, the article, Omega-3 Fatty Acids and Cardiovascular Prevention. Is the jury still out? All members of the RACP have free access to the IMJ, the Journal of Paediatrics and Child Health, and the Occupational Health Journal, the three academic publications of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. And you also have access to a library of hundreds of video lectures designed around the trainee curricula. These can be found at elearning.recp.edu.au, along with other online courses helping trainees to prepare for divisional exams. For fellows, there are courses walking you through activities that meet the MBA's requirements of strength and CPD, via auditing of one's practice outcomes and collecting feedback. This podcast was produced on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eura Nation. I pay respect to their elders past and present. I'm Mick Cabazzini. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.